the night air had a chill. My buddies and I were hanging out in front of my friend's home. And uh, at that time of life, I was unsaved and had my, my share of uh, unsanctified events. There was a, another man, slightly older than I was, who lived next door to my friend. And uh, he came walking up to us on this uh, cold evening. He was high as a kite. <laughs> Clearly, he had been smoking something he should not have been smoking. And this was the fellow who had told me at one time that he was in the iron and steel business. And he said this with all seriousness. He would go out and steal, and his mom would stay home and iron. Now, across the street was a family that had a huge German shepherd. I always had a respect for German shepherds, my dad being a retired D.C. police officer and having trained uh, dogs with the canine corps. And on this particular evening, the dog got away. And it made a dash straight for us. My friend grabbed this gentleman who was filled with marijuana on cloud nine and thrust him in the direction of the dog. This has been 40 years ago. And uh, I can still remember what happened at that moment because this fella who was not feeling any pain started to run at this huge German shepherd. And the German shepherd turned around and ran back up the steps. Oh, a sigh of relief. Uh, I thought the fellow was going to be puppy chow for just a moment. Uh, I wouldn't call exactly that uh, shove of self-preservation from my one friend uh, to the other man, an act of brotherly love. Uh, today, we're going to study the church of brotherly love, the church of Philadelphia. Would you turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 3? And as you're turning to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to see three promises that Jesus gives to the children of God concerning, number one, the millennial kingdom, then the tribulation, and then finally, the new Jerusalem. So as you're turning to Revelation chapter 3, let me give you the background uh, to the church of Philadelphia. It was located about 28 miles southeast of Sardis, it was named after Attalus II. He was the ruler in Pergamon uh, for his brother Eumenes II. Uh, it was a border town where the borders of Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia met. Philadelphia also had experienced earthquakes. It was located on a large plain called the Burned Lands. In AD 17... A severe earthquake destroyed nearby Sardis and 10 other cities. These tremors continued for years. So those who had lived within the confines of Philadelphia started to live outside of that city for fear of falling stones. Uh, today, in that same location... Uh, you have several thousand Christians, from what I told, in Alashir, 
who live right there. It's amazing to see the church of Jesus Christ still thriving. Let me go ahead and read to you Revelation chapter 3. And I begin in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you bow your heads and hearts as I lead us in prayer? Father, I thank you that I've come to know what brotherly love really is, and I thank you for it. Lord, we're privileged again to study one of the seven churches of Asia Minor in western Turkey, and I thank you for the timeless message that is here because what applies to one church should be employed by all. Would your spirit guide us into your word, understanding the truth that is before us? And we thank you, Father, for the inerrant and inspired and infallible word of God that is timeless in nature, that is the living word. Speak to every heart today, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just um, begin with our first promise, which is our first point. Jesus promises Christians entrance to the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is what we will come upon in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. It is that thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. By the way, the word 1000 occurs six times. It's spoken of in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. So Jesus promises Christians entrance to the millennial kingdom. Jesus begins by addressing the church of Philadelphia. The name Philadelphia proper is used twice in the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 11, and then down here in chapter 3 in verse 7. But the term is used six other times in reference to brotherly love. For instance, in uh, Hebrews uh, 13, in verse 1, it says, let brotherly love continue. That's the term that we are looking at today for the name Philadelphia. Uh, Jesus then gives four 
four self-characterizations of himself. Notice here it says, these things says he who is holy. He is the holy one. Ha hagias. Uh, a common term in the scripture which means an individual or something that is set apart as sacred. And in this case, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the term is used of the Father over in chapter 4 in verse 8 who will receive worship. Uh, it's used twice by the Apostle Peter in Acts 4 in verse 27 and then again in verse 30 where Jesus is called your holy servant Jesus. Jesus now self-describes himself as the holy one who was set apart to God. So he's holy. He's absolutely pure. Number two, it says he who is true. The idea is that of being genuine. We have a contrast, by the way, because if you come over to chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Jesus is the truth. And in contrast, we have a group of people that are claiming to have control over the kingdom, that they themselves are the ones that will go in. But in actuality, Jesus says they are liars, but he himself is true. And then our third self-characterization, he who has the key of David. An interesting expression here. He who has the key of David. Uh, this reference goes back to Isaiah 22:22 of Iliacum. Uh, the name Iliacum means God raises up. He was the palace administrator in charge of the palace. Uh, he replaced the wicked Shebna back then. And I think the idea here is the key is a symbol of authority. Jesus has the key of David. Now, come back just for a moment to Revelation 3.9. We are told by Jesus of a group of Jews, and they are claiming that they have right to the kingdom, but I think also they are saying that no one else does. In other words, these Christians will not get into the kingdom. Now, why might they do that? Here it says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue who have Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, they're going to come and worship before the feet of these saints. Well, do you remember when John the Baptist was preaching in Matthew chapter 3? And what he attacked the Jewish leaders for? They were making a connection between Abraham, the father of faith, and themselves. See, back in Jesus' day, many of the rabbis believed that Abraham had such great works that his merit was passed down to his descendants. And we have John just going at the Jews saying, this isn't the case. See, because they said, we have Abraham as our father. And apparently that mentality is carrying on here in verse 7. Now, as we're moving forward here, I want to point out that it's Jesus 
as the one who possesses the keys. He has the authority, but here it's the key of David. What exactly does this refer to? And we need to go to the Old Testament, I think, to get the answer. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Would you turn here, please? 2 Samuel chapter 7. I believe you know the story, but I'll give you the background. David has a heart to build God a permanent dwelling place. They had the tabernacle, if you recall, that was constructed under Moses, but now David wants to give God a house, a place where his presence could dwell. But our great God turns around and says, David, you know, I really appreciate that. I'm not going to let you do it, although his son Solomon would, but I'm going to give you three things, an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. Now you have to remember here that the greatest descendant of David is our Lord Jesus Christ. So take a look at this. 2 Samuel 7, down in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come for your body and I will establish his, and you might want to highlight or underline the word kingdom. That's key. He shall build a, next word, a house for my name, and I will establish the, our third term, throne of his kingdom. But for how long? Forever. You see, it's eternal house, throne, and kingdom. Verse 14 now. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Hmm. Fascinating, is it not? An eternal house, throne, and kingdom promised to David. Now, we had to go down the pike to the one that would come from the line of David to fulfill this, our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's uh, follow the thread, if you will. Now, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Mary is a virgin, a Parthenos, and she is expecting a child. It was the Holy Spirit that had come upon her to perform this miracle in the womb. The child would be Emmanuel, God with us. So in Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, an angel comes to explain to Mary exactly what has happened and who is in her womb. Down in verse 30, then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest and of the Lord God will give him the, notice the term, throne of his father. And who's his father? David. See the connection? And he will reign over the house, that's our second term, of Jacob. But for how long? 
forever and of his kingdom there's our third term there will be no end and i love mary let it be according to your word how precious is that so come back with me please revelation chapter 3 and i'd like to give you one other reference as you're coming back to revelation 3 in acts chapter 2 in verse 30, as Peter is preaching on a day of Pentecost, he says that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up to Christ to sit on his throne. So Peter clearly makes the connection from David to the Messiah who has the key, the symbol of authority, because it would be an eternal house, throne, and kingdom. Now keep in mind, those Jews are trying to say, no, 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 it's for us and trying to exclude others. And uh, that's not going to happen, is it? And now our fourth self-characterization here is he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Jesus, like Iliacum from Isaiah chapter 22, has final authority to whom enters the kingdom. And now we transition to familiar words. To each church, the one who has just self-described as the Holy One says in verse 8, I know your works. I know your works. And then he quickly says, see, I have set before you an open door. Now, why is context important? Well, because it's the key to determine what the meaning of particular words are. And in the case here, John Walverd has given us the statement that this is speaking of missionary opportunity. But has that been what our Lord Jesus is speaking about? See, this is not a parallel text to 1 Corinthians 16, 9, where Paul says, for a great and effective door has opened to me. Uh, this text is not speaking about evangelism. It's talking about the kingdom. And as a result of that, Jesus' words here, I have set. Literally, I have given a perfect tense verb, which means he's given this in the past with the result continuing. And what is he given? An open door. See, Jesus is the one who determines who enters the kingdom or not. Iliacum, in the Old Testament, in charge of the palace as the administrator, made certain determinations on who could come and who could not. Jesus does the same, but when it comes to the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, I have given an open door. See, he has the right to do this. Because in Revelation 5, 5, speaking of Jesus, it says that he is the root of David. In other words, he fulfills what 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17, that connects with Luke 1, 30 through 33, shows. Jesus has the exclusive right to open the door. And this is exactly what he does. Now listen to Revelation twenty two sixteen, And I love the connections of David to Jesus. Revelation twenty two sixteen. Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring 
of David. Now, continuing in our text, Jesus continues to say, and no one can shut it. The adversaries of the church of Jesus Christ, the Jews, perhaps referring as it does in the Gospel of John to the religious hierarchy, cannot keep Jesus' children, his saints, out of the kingdom. They don't have that kind of authority, and they themselves will not enter in because they have neglected the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So that is what we have before us here. It's all about that future kingdom and that Jesus has the authority to permit who goes in and who is excluded. And now as he's addressing his church, he says, for you have a little strength. Could they be small in number? But yet they need to maintain their godly convictions, and cling to the promises of God. See, although we might be small in number, and any local church could be small in number, the main thing is not how large your congregation is. The key is holding to the promises of God and staying faithful to what we have been charged to do. You have a little strength. You have kept my word. That's what Jesus praises this church for and have not denied my name. In the midst of persecution, in a world at that time that despised the name of Jesus, the church of Philadelphia remained true. Now, verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. I uh, just want to draw your attention to the words I will make. It's the same Greek word didomi that we saw in the previous verse, chapter 3 in verse 8, which means to give. Jesus is the one. I will make those, I will give those of the synagogue of Satan. And notice how they self-describe, <laughs> who say they are Jews. Remember the name Jew? Judah comes from the Hebrew and means praise. And Paul, in Romans chapter 2, down beginning in verse 17, he's speaking to the Jews who basically think they're getting this entrance to the kingdom because of their connection to Abraham. But yet he exposes that they are not true Jews. Why? Because they're not bringing praise to God by their lives. So those who say they are Jews and are not, he goes and said, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Strong words. In Philippians chapter 2, in a passage called the kenosis, the emptying out, because when Christ came to earth, he took on humanity. He's fully God, but chose not to use certain of his attributes. And now he has the name above every name. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, Those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue shall what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. So who's in charge of the kingdom? 
It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So our first point, Jesus promises Christians entrance to the millennial kingdom. Now keep in mind, we're right now in the church age. This period began on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God came actually to live within believers permanently. How long will this time last? Well, until Christ comes back for us in the rapture. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. That's 1 Corinthians 15. When we meet him in the clouds and he takes us to heaven, shortly thereafter there will be a man called the Antichrist who will make a covenant with Israel for seven years. That's Daniel 9, 24 through 27 and will violate, he'll break that covenant. That seven-year period refers to the tribulation period that we will study in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. The tribulation period will end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now in the rapture we're caught up to be with the Lord before the tribulation and I'll share my reasons why I believe that in a little bit. Then there's a tribulation period at the end of the tribulation Christ comes back in Revelation 19 14. We come back with him and he puts down his enemies. Why does he do that? It's to then establish his kingdom. So it gives you the periods, the rapture, the tribulation, and then the millennial kingdom. Now for our second point. Jesus promises Christians deliverance from the tribulation. Jesus promises Christians deliverance from the tribulation. That's down in verses 10 and 11. A key promise, one that you need to know very well, is given to the church of Philadelphia. Remember, what is given to one church applies to all. So let me just read this whole verse to you. Revelation 3.10, and I'm going to dissect it for you bit by bit. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. It's talking about a period of time when there will be unprecedented trial, but not just locally, but upon the whole earth. Now, let me show you some words you're very familiar with that first emerge over in Revelation 2, down in verse 7. Revelation 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, says Jesus, let him hear what the Spirit says, and you might want to note the words, to the churches. To the churches. Now, you got that expression locked down in your mind? Now, I'm going to take you a couple places. First of all, I want to take you to the first gospel. Over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And once you get over to chapter 13... Let your eyes come down to verse 9. Now, let me point this out to you. Some teach about the church in the Old Testament, which is just inaccurate. In Matthew 16, 18, note that that's later than what I'm about to read to you here. Jesus says, I will build my church. He uses a future tense verb showing that that is in the future. So this is pre church age what Jesus is saying talking about here in Matthew 13 using speaking about various parables it says he who has an ear to hear let him hear now you know which words are missing 
what the Spirit says to the churches. Why? The church isn't in play yet. It has not come to pass. That doesn't happen until Acts 2 with the day of Pentecost. want to give you this verse just to begin our little study. Now, with that said, go to Revelation, same uh, uh, scripture reference, 13.9, okay? Matthew 13.9. Now, over to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 9. And why is this critical? Because when you have the scripture, it's not as if Jesus had given an assignment to the scripture writer to put this down in so many words. So they were either trying to add words or take away words in order to meet a quote. No, the Spirit of God gave us exactly what was meant to be given. Now, in chapter 6 of Revelation, now you're in chapter 13, but in chapter 6 is the beginning, which we're going to see in a moment, of the tribulation period. The tribulation period, where you have the waves of judgment, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And it's in that period of time that over half the world's population is killed off even early in the tribulation. So now when you're down to chapter 13, you're in the heart of the tribulation. But now notice in verse 9, speaking in the context of the Antichrist, it says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And what isn't said? What the Spirit says to the church is why. The church has been raptured out before this period of time. And just again to make sure you really understand that this is the tribulation period. Just go back to Revelation chapter 6. You recall us in Revelation 6 where the tribulation begins. Come down to verse 17. And I want you to think about the statement given for us in Revelation chapter 6 down in verse 17. The seal judgments have begun in verse 17 for the great day of his wrath. You might want to Lock on to the word wrath here. The great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Clearly, the tribulation period is called a time of wrath. Time of wrath. Are we meant to go into the tribulation and experience this time of wrath? Now I want to take you to first Thessalonians, if you'd work there with me, please, in your Bible, going back to your left. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, down in verse 10. Again, thinking about the tribulation being a time of wrath. The Thessalonians had come to Christ. They had turned from idols to the true God. And in verse 10 of chapter 1, this is 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, and to wait. For his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The verb here, delivers, from huomai, can be used of a physical and a bodily deliverance. People were mocking Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27 and verse 43, saying, let him deliver himself. In other words, let him extricate himself from the cross. Let him come on down. And then in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7, it speaks about righteous Lot being delivered out of Sodom. See, a physical and bodily 
deliverance. And what does Jesus do for the born-again Christian? Even Jesus who, see, delivers us physically and bodily from what? The wrath to come. The tribulation is a period of wrath that we are not meant to enter into. And that's why you have, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But when you go to Revelation 13, 9, guess what words are missing? What the Spirit says to the church is. Why? Because the church is not in the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 shows us. And then also another reference, chapter 5, staying in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5, down in verse 9. 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Think about that. What is the tribulation? Revelation 6, 17, it's a period of wrath. What are we not appointed to? Wrath. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, we will not experience the tribulation wrath, nor the wrath of eternal damnation. In Romans chapter 5, in verse 9, it says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. It's the death of Jesus Christ for us that frees us from ever entering the tribulation period or ever being condemned to hell. There's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, because you have kept my command to persevere, Jesus says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. See, this is global, and that's important to note. Not just to those in a region of Philadelphia that were experiencing earthquakes, but this is global, and it talks about the hour of temptation. The term here for hour means any period of time, especially a season. This word appears in 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last hour. Referring to the time of the church age when it's just waiting now for Christ to come back. We've been in the last days, according to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, for 2,000 years. But what does John call this the last hour? A literal physical hour? No, a, a, a period of time. John Walford writes, it should be noted that this deliverance is not only from trial, but from a period in time in which the trial exists, the hour of temptation. Now let your eyes come to the words, keep you from. Keep you from. Tereso ek, from the Greek. We have individuals who claim that, uh, that Christians will go through the tribulation, and then emerge out of it. Go through, then come out. Those individuals who believe we go through the tribulation period only to come out when Christ comes back are called post-tribulationists. Post-tribulationists. Football fans, what do you watch after the football game? The post-game show. It happens afterwards. Post-tribulationists believe that we, the Church of Jesus Christ, goes through the tribulation and then is delivered out after it. But let me just point out from these words here, tereso ek, that you can't squeeze two verbal ideas out of one phrase. And then also, can I ask you this question? 
how would it be a note of encouragement to these believers that they're going through the tribulation? See, what Jesus says in 310, because you have kept my command to persevere, I'm going to keep you from it. Can you really imagine Jesus going, you know, guys, you've been really faithful to me. You've kept my word. This is what I'm going to give to you. You're going to experience the seals, trumpet, bowl judgments, and all the like. I don't think that would be a word of encouragement. (laughs) Jeremiah 30 and verse 7 actually calls the second half of the tribulation uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. Also, saints in the tribulation aren't all protected. Uh, In chapter 7 of Revelation, we're going to meet the 144,000 Jews supernaturally saved in the tribulation. But then later on, when you come over to Revelation 7, down in verses 9 through 17, we see it, and again in chapter 14, that many, if not all of them, die. So there's no guarantee you get protected through, only to emerge out. And by the way, notice that the point of the tribulation is to test those who dwell on the earth. Notice that expression, you should underline it, those who dwell on the earth. This is a specific group of people. Uh, In view throughout the book of Revelation, that will experience God's wrath because they call this world their home. It becomes really a technical term. And I have a plethora of references where it speaks about those who dwell on the earth. They're basically settled on this earth. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, our citizenship is where? Heaven. These individuals say right here. So let me just run through these so you can see how often this term's going to appear as we go there in the future. Chapter 6 and verse 10, 8, 13, 11, 10, 12, 12, 13, 8, 13, 12, 13, 14, 14, 6, 17, 2, and 17, 8. It's a technical term. Those are the ones that are going to experience the hour of trial, the unbelievers. With all this in mind, Jesus then says in verse 11, Behold, I come quickly a reference to the church about the rapture and then he says and these are priceless words hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown in other words church of jesus christ stand fast don't compromise don't buy into the lies of this world keep looking for the imminent return of christ Be like Jesus Christ, live holy lives, separated unto God. Listen to 2 John, verse 8. John writes, look to yourselves that we do not lose these things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. In other words, press on to the end so one day you can receive a full reward reward when Christ comes back. Now, let's review our first two points or promises. Jesus promises Christians entrance to the millennial kingdom. Second promise, Jesus promises Christians deliverance from the tribulation. And our third promise, Jesus promises Christians permanence, permanence in the new Jerusalem. That's down in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, familiar words, he who overcomes, referring to all believers, according to 1 John 5, 4 and 5. And now the words, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So is that going to be you forever and ever, a pillar in the temple of God? You're just going to stand there erect and just hold up the structure? 
I uh, think not. I don't believe it's a literal pillar here because actually we're told that there is no temple in the new Jerusalem and that we find from Revelation 21, 22. And it's just a, a little side note here. When you see the word temple, the naas, it speaks about the holy place and the holy of holies. This is the first time that term appears in the book of Revelation. And the very last reference is over in chapter 21, 22. And you know what it's referring to? The new Jerusalem. See, the idea here is going to be the permanence in the kingdom. There are three aspects I'd like to point out to you now uh, concerning a pillar. Number one, a pillar supports a building. It speaks of permanence. Uh, Number two, Uh, When it is used, this term in the New Testament, it can mean authority or influence. The Apostle Paul, speaking of James, Cephas, and John, said that they seem to be what? Pillars in the church, those that were leaders. And then Dr. Ryrie uh, points out that the third aspect is that of honor. Let me read the quote. The promise that believers will be pillars may allude to the custom in Philadelphia of honoring a magistrate or philanthropist by placing a great pillar in one of the temples with his name inscribed on it. So perhaps it's an expression here of honor. The key to understand, though, is that not only the Philadelphia Christians but all Christians will have permanent, a permanent residence in the new Jerusalem. Because notice the words now, and he will go out no more. It's eternal security for you, is it not? Those who come to Christ, he will no wise cast out. Jesus gives us eternal life. The glorification will be complete and we'll have glorified bodies in the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is a delight to think about. Not only that, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. To put one's name on something implies ownership. You've done it. I remember when when you go play basketball with uh, the fellas. You know, you wrote your name on your own basketball. Why? So everybody knows at the end of the game, that's my ball, right? Uh, To put one's name shows that it's ownership. In this case, it's by God. And it's a contrast to the earth dwellers. They're going to be on the earth saying, this world's my home. They'll be banished from the presence of Jesus forever. And you and I will be in the new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. We're going to be citizens in the new Jerusalem. Again, Philippians 3, in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And then, Jesus' new name will be in relation of him as a ruler. And you just gotta love this. Uh, The new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And then down in verse 13, he who has an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's given to one church applies to all. It was in uh, June of 2006. Give you a name, Warren Buffett. Perhaps you recognize the name. The world's second richest man at that time. 
announced he would donate 85% of his 44 billion fortune (laughs) to five charitable foundations. Commenting on this, this is what Buffett said, quote, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. Now, Jesus says ever so clearly, it's not by works. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through me. If you want to bypass the tribulation, if you want to have entrance to the millennial kingdom, if you want to have a permanent place in the new Jerusalem, it's by turning away from your sin, putting your faith solely in Jesus Christ, who died for your sin on the cross. He became our substitute and three days later conquered death. That's how you get to experience these promises and these blessings. Let me just review these points and we're done. Jesus promises Christians entrance to millennial kingdom. Remember way back in the Garden of Eden, you had paradise. Well, the millennial kingdom will be paradise. Romans 8 tells us that this earth as we know it now will be renovated to like its former condition, like the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve fell. So it's something to think about that in this millennial kingdom, the peace that will rule. Why? Because the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, will be sitting on his throne ruling over the earth and you and I will be ruling and reigning with him. Number two, Jesus promises deliverance from the tribulation. What scares you? Well, all you have to do is read Revelation chapter 9 about the demonic activity that will be rampant and global during the tribulation. That should scare you. (laughs) It's not any place I want to be. But there's a promise that is given to us right here from Revelation 3 that when we know him, he's going to keep us from that whole period of time. Child of God, you will not experience the wrath of the tribulation nor eternal damnation because the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed you from all sin. And then finally, Jesus promises Christians permanence in the new Jerusalem. We need to start living as if we are citizens of the new Jerusalem because it's a done deal. When you think about God, he's not controlled by time. Past, present, future, he sees it, controls it all at once. He knows it all. Promises that he give will always be fulfilled. God cannot break an oath. He cannot lie. So this is what is before. So now let's start living separate lives, pleasing lives to our God as worthy citizens in a new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Thank you, my Father. What an awesome, awesome text today. Thank you for those of Philadelphia 2,000 years ago who in the midst of persecution were standing strong that Father will get to meet even in the future. How exciting is that? And Lord, I just pray as we have opportunity as children of God to be in that future kingdom, we look forward to that. And thank you for keeping us from the tribulation. But Lord, we also thank you for the permanence that we will experience in the new Jerusalem. Oh Lord, help us to live like children of the King.
And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.